Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. And welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House. Very special episode today with Chris Pierce. Chris was raised by a white mother and a black father who impressed the importance of music in terms of finding peace and love within. While Chris was growing up, interracial marriage had only just become legal countrywide in 1967, and his family was not always accepted. At five years old, a burning cross was placed on his front yard, and the way his parents calmly reacted to this horrible act left a profound impact on young Chris. He references that moment on his song Sound All the Bells from his new record American Silence and said it forced an emotional intelligence in me as a young kid. Chris openly discusses his incredible life story in our conversation, which also includes him speaking to his rare hearing disorder, otosclerosis. He explains what hearing and playing music is like for someone with only 30% hearing in one ear. We also talk about his experience touring with mentors like B.B. King and Seal, his relationship with his wife, Tara Buck, and his dog, Senya. Of the songs on American Silence, Chris has said it's important to not give up on reaching out to those who have stayed silent for too long about the issues that affect those around us all. Complacency is an addiction that plagues our society. If you smile and applaud for those different than you, be willing to fight for those folks too. Also, he said, what are you actually doing for people who don't look like you? Listen to the music of Chris Pierce, a black man who is telling us about his experience and reflections of his America. Murdered black American names like George Floyd, Adam Toledo, and Dante Wright are filling headlines and social media feeds. It's tragic, it makes you feel helpless, and the solutions are hard work. Fight that complacency in any way you can. Listening to Chris's album is a really good reminder to keep on fighting. I wanted to take a listen to a song from Chris's new album. Actually, we're going to listen to the entire song. It's been burning for a while. It's a really powerful track. And then we'll get to our conversation with the incredible Chris Pierce on Basic Folk. Woke up this morning Saw that smoke up in the sky Crowd of people watching Asking who and how and why Flames are rolling down the city Rolling for a mile How'd it get so bad, you ask? It's been burning for a while You say it's in the eye of the beholder Well, I'll just go and check Now that ain't no chip up on my shoulder that's your boot up on my neck Hide these flames go so far, yes Now they're gone a thousand miles I got a news flash for you They've been burning for a while It's been burning for a while down here Glad you stopped to see It ain't no water gonna douse it down Until you hear from me You say it's in the eye of the beholder well, I'll just go and check Now there ain't no chip up on my shoulder That's your boot up on my neck They'd say it's in the eye of the beholder Well, I'll just go and check Now there ain't no chip up on my shoulder That's your boot up on my neck ah, It's been burning for a while for a while 
It's been burning for a while. It's been burning for a while. It's been burning for a while down here. Glad you stopped to see. And ain't no water gonna douse it down until you're here for me. Until you're here for me. Chris Pierce, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm very excited to talk to you as well, Cindy. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's a little surreal to release an album and not be touring. But I'm very thankful to, to have the extra time to, you know, promote from home and do a few shows and that kind of thing uh, from here. And hopefully, who knows, soon we can right. all be together. Yeah, it's definitely been a learning process for everybody. And you certainly have like a really interesting background. There's just so much going on with you. And I don't know if we're going to get to it all in one interview, um, but let's give it a shot. All right. All right. All right. Up, up game. All right. So you grew up with a black father and a white mother in Pasadena, California. And early on, they impressed the importance of music in terms of like finding peace and love with within, which is like such a beautiful lesson for a young kid to have. Mm. And you've talked about like when your father sang to your mother that you felt that love in the house. Mm. What was that feeling like? And how have you used music to center yourself throughout your life? Yeah, you know, my my folks uh situation was, you know, unique looking back that uh, they moved from uh, the Midwest, my dad from the South, my mom from the Midwest, to California, which was they kind of looked at as kind of like this promised land where a couple like them would be accepted and that kind of thing. And it turned out to be um, just as hard. Was it in the 70s that this was? This was, yeah, very early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Late 60s when they moved here. Yeah. So were there some states at that time where it, interracial marriage was still illegal? I believe so. Yeah, I believe yeah. there were several. And um, and so, yeah, California was supposed to be kind of like this, this kind of place of peace and love and togetherness and acceptance and that kind of thing. At least that's how it looked on the on the brochure. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but they came here and they, they just really um, kind of overcame some obstacles and, and made it that within our home. Um, which I thought was, looking back especially, I think it's just beautiful and a great lesson. I felt safe with them. I felt like there was love and uh, togetherness and acceptance within our home and the people they'd bring into our home, that kind of thing. And I feel like, you know, the as far as music goes, music was a huge part of that place of refuge for them. Um, and there was so much great music at the time, and they were such big fans, and my dad had a beautiful voice, um, that music became part of that piece um, for them. And I feel like they wanted that to be a part of my life, especially when they saw from an early age how much I gravitated um, and my soul was moved uh, by music. That became kind of, in, in any time of you know, celebration, um, but for me, more importantly, any kind of time of um, adversity, music became something that was like this really powerful, uh, like antidote in our home. Um, And we'd spin records and we'd be together. And my dad would sing to my mother. And I think for that, uh, to answer your question, uh, long story longer, that kind of like empowerment to togetherness, resilience, uh, hope, uh, that they found through music made me even want to have a relationship with music from a young age, even more so because it was just apparent to me that not only was this happening in my home, but that this was such a powerful force that I just wanted to be a part of it. So it's really clear how your parents impacted the type of person and the type of musician you are, but how did the way that your parents treated and listened to music impact the type of music listener you are? Uh, yeah, uh, very much so. Um, uh, the lyrics were so important to my mother, my mother being an English teacher. Uh, my mother would dissect the lyrics. She'd talk to me about mm-hmm. the lyrics. She'd always point out that, Chris, this song could mean something different to everybody that heard it. 
And then she'd always point out the times where she'd feel like the song was like a universal message. Songs that had a worldwide appeal. And that was really important to me and, and, um, and really made me want to become a lyricist. And music, the music side of it, my father was uh, in choirs growing up. He was in the African Methodist Episcopalian Church in the South and uh, part of the choir from the time he was young. And he was all about the arrangements of the song and the builds of the song. And that's what he'd always point out to me. He'd say, you see, son, this is like where they're pulling us in. They're pulling us in. And then, uh, and then he'd say, okay, now this is the bridge. This is what's going to connect it. And he did, really explained to me kind of the foundation of different ways to structure songs, um, different ways emotionally to build the songs, to uh, convey the message uh, that you want uh, through the lyrics and how the music can really accentuate the lyrics um, and how, how it's important to leave space for the lyrics. And, uh, and so, the, yeah, it was really the, the listening. It was um, dissecting. Um, it was uh, dissecting the songs. It was emotionally being with the songs. Uh, there was crying. There was yelling at mm. the record player. Uh, you know, go ahead, do it louder. You know, I mean, it was, there was clapping. There was singing along. There was, I mean, it was very, very, very uh, powerful and emotional and uh, I'd say analytical um, experience. Wow. Yeah. In your song, Sound All the Bells, on your new record, you make a reference to when somebody put a burning cross on your parents' front lawn when you were five, which is a um, memory that like you didn't exactly remember until your mom kind of filled in the details for you years later. And you said, but you did kind of like remember the way that they reacted to it and what they told you about it. And it said it forced an emotional intelligence in me as a young kid. Mm. What did what did that mean for you? Well, I, I think that for me, um, first off, I, I remember it made me really protective of my parents and our family from a very young age. Um, way more protective than I think any kid should have to be. Um, mm. And I think that uh, for me, that situation, it's it, ironically, I'm meeting my mom for dinner in the town that I that happened tonight mm. uh, for an outdoor dining experience. <laughs> First time I've seen her in a long time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, years later, sitting with her at dinner tonight and having my dad, be, you know, my dad's been gone for 20 years. Mm. Um, it's something to look back on for me as an example of you know our resilience as a family and how freedom and justice and the fight for freedom of justice was like something that would only be awakened by things like that not the opposite and it made me makes me proud to think about that that instead of hiding out and 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 not being a part of the community my parents did the opposite uh they gave an example of how beautiful their love was and how beautiful our family was and how uh, authentic it was to have me as a kid. And it was a, it was a kind of an urgency and an opportunity for real change. Uh, that's how they saw it. And for me, that's a great lesson in, in making music and being a voice for change and, and, and uh, putting things out that are thought-provoking it's back to that lesson. It's back to even having somebody do something like that and, and feeling like you need to protect your home and your family, that they found some light out of that and some good out of that. And it's kind of like this struggle for, for folks for a long time. And, you know, the African-American Black experience in America has been, you know, even though <laughs> you bring us here you take our freedom, you beat us, you whip us, you, you don't allow us to vote. And then when we get the right to vote, you keep trying to take that 14th Amendment, that equal mm. protection away from us. We still just want to love you and just want to, to be accepted. And I think that's what, what my parents were doing. Was that hard for you as a young person to like cultivate 
that calm and that peace when faced with racism and oppression? At times it was. Uh, I'd say when I was really young, I just wanted to be really protective. As I got older, um, in, in my teens especially, um, as things started happening, you know, skinheads shooting at a group of friends of mine and I, uh, different, different fights because of race and eventually being arrested and, and um, charged with a, uh, obstructing justice after, you know, having broken ribs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that really uh, not only struck me uh, in a way where I wanted to, to fight back with more than just love. <laughs> mm. But uh, but it really, I think, um, is another example of, you know, having the parents I had, I was able to move through it most of the times and say, okay, Chris, how can you really do something with this and, and push forward in life and not be afraid to let people know that this happened um, and stay blessed and and uh, thankful that you're here to, to live and sing and tell about it. Um, I really credit my, my parents and my upbringing with that. You came from two very different worlds with your mom's family and your dad's family. Your dad's family sounds very big, 10, yeah. ten kids. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't find any info about what your mom's upbringing was like, but what were those families like and how did you relate to each? Um, both families very loving. Um, my dad, the youngest of 10, um, from Florida, from the South, originally South Carolina, um, if you go way back. I never met my grandparents on my dad's side, but met a lot of his brothers and sisters. Um, and they're all gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, so now there's like, you know, a lot of this huge group of cousins and their kids and some of my cousins are are a lot older than me, so it's like aunts and uncles kind of. And uh, the family is very uh, uh, loving, very uh, intelligent. Both sides of my family are about uh, are about education and hard work and creativity. On my dad's side, uh, uh, amazing cooks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody, there's always uh, things, you know, when I visit, they center around just amazing food. Um, and on my mother's side, uh, she's she is uh, middle of four uh, kids. She's the second oldest, I'd say. And my aunts and uncles are still all around. Um, both of my mom's brothers went into... Um, uh, work for uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is uh, part of NASA, um, wow. and were uh, kind of uh, rocket uh, engineers. And then my aunt uh, worked for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, when I was young, and then uh, a lot of different jobs kind of in that, that field. Um, and then my mother being a teacher. Um, and so, again, education on the forefront um, a lot of soulfulness on my mom's side of the family as well. I, they're all in California, so I got to you know grow up and do um, uh, holidays and that kind of thing with with mm. my mom's side of the family uh, growing up. And uh, just uh, it's uh, a lot of love, a lot of uh, acceptance, and uh, with completely different upbringings. <laughs> <laughs> my mom didn't. My mom has this. She tells me often, you know, Chris. Now I'd like to remind you, like. I hadn't seen a black person in real life until I was out of high school, only on television. Um, yeah. And just to, to think about that and that part of her upbringing and, and then her going on to becoming a teacher, becoming one of the first members of, uh, of NOW, National Organization of Women. One mm. of the, the, she, she drafted the first newsletter for the National Organization of Women and was fighting for, for women's rights and equal rights and meeting my dad and just being a, a just a, a powerful, powerful uh, woman um, mm. and force to me.
You started singing in the church choir at five years old, and you said you'd be the kid in the back, rocking back and forth, deeply moved by the music. Um, how did the way you felt about music impact your ability to connect with your faith? Well, that's an amazing question. Um, I'd say that recognizing that there was something greater than me that was enabling this connection with not only music, but pure joy, to me was, uh, I've never really thought about that question. That, that's an amazing question. To me, that that is what that means to me. It's from the time I was young, music was every cell of my body. It was, uh, it was pure joy. It was love. It was expression. And I think the understanding of um, being a, a vessel and not knowing where a lot of these things came from, lifting my voice for the first times in, in church choir and improvising and not knowing where it came from, really, I think, gave me an understanding from the time I was young that uh, it comes from something way greater than I am. <laughs> mm. And that um, it's a something that you have to, that I'm going to have to uh, hold sacred uh, and then I think that really made me want to explore more into uh, what what faith means, um, different histories, different translations, um, and what it means to me, uh, most importantly, and, and find that place and, and have that relationship. You mentioned this, that your mom, after um, your parents split up, she moved you to a more liberal town, Claremont, California. And you mm. said um, in junior high and high school, you started to like celebrate your identity by mm. digging in and looking at it as an asset. What did that look like for you? And how did that um, how did that change your perspective? Well, uh, you know, Claremont was was uh, is uh, it's a college town and. Some would say it's very diverse. Some would probably say it isn't. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit, of, there's classism there, definitely. Were you in um, high school and junior high in the late 80s, early 90s? I was. So uh, we, when we moved there, I was still in uh, elementary school. And that was, that was the uh, early, early mid 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd say, I want to say 84 is when we moved there. Um, and then I did, yeah, I did public school, uh, elementary, junior high and high school there. Oh, so a lot of your schooling. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and growing, um, you yeah. know, Claremont in a lot of ways is like responsible for my upbringing there is uh, in a lot of ways responsible for who I am. Um, and some of my experiences there, um, being surrounded by the colleges, liberal arts schools, uh, the village area where we'd have interaction with, you know, college kids, professors, that environment um, was, I think, very, it was very fortunate to grow up in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. um, then, and there was like even a, there's a school of theology there, you know, there were like great thinking. There were a lot of kids like were on the forefront of a lot of things and, and uh, a lot of politics being discussed, uh, a lot of history being discussed, uh, and a lot of music. Um, there was a great uh, music store called the Folk Music Center there mm -hmm. that uh, you could pick guitars off the wall and learn things. And, and that was always open to kids and, and parents alike and could kind of freely go in there and and be a part of music in that way, and uh, and there was a, there were a lot of kids my age that were into playing instruments and expressing themselves in that way, and uh, and so yeah, so I grew up just really in a in a neighborhood of, for me it was diverse. Um, some of my childhood friends were have gone on to be great musicians, authors, poets, uh, writers. Um, to me, it was a very special time and a very special place. Uh, there were also also some things that weren't that great um, as far as, you know, things that I think a lot of communities go through still to this to this time. It's like uh, classism. There was some racism. Um, there was a lot of racism in the surrounding towns. Um, and so when 
kids would travel out of the town or when other other uh, young people would come in uh, sporting events and hanging out on the weekends and that kind of thing. There were often a lot of clashes due to that. Uh, my high school was a, a high school where there were there were sit-ins, there were there were days of silence, there were of uh, uh, there were walkouts. There were I mean it was it was a, 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 a special group of of people I think in a special community who felt empowered to. Uh, lift their voices and be a part of change uh, in our own little way in that community. Um, in your TED Talk, you said this. It's so beautiful. Musicians have the responsibility to be as vulnerable as possible. Through that, we can maybe give others a little help and a path or way of understanding themselves and the emotions they're going through. Paraphrasing, mm. not an exact quote, um, <laughs> but it's just such a beautiful TED Talk. Um, Thank you. And, and that is kind of like the basis of why you wanted to start writing songs. Can you talk more about like first discovering that channel of human connection through music and where that lives with you today? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for watching the TED talk. <laughs> um, and yeah, I feel like the responsibility, the connection, um, like I was saying, you know, I was saying about faith earlier, it's it's a sacred place um, to me. Music is a sacred place, and the, and having the opportunity to be a musician, it's so deep for me <laughs> that I think from uh, the starting to write um, songs, you know, ten years old, nine years old, writing lyrics down, poetry, that kind of thing, it made me realize that. I can be part of a greater conversation and and hold myself responsible for what that whatever little part of that greater conversation can be. Hold myself responsible to try to translate my emotional self through music in a way that can really speak to my authentic experience and then possibly move somebody to the point where they might think differently about something. I mean, th imagine that through a song. I mean, to me, that's always been the main thing. Uh, or maybe we were talking about permission earlier. Maybe in some way I can write something or sing something or convey something musically that would give somebody else permission to, to express themselves in that way or open something up. Um, and I feel like it's it's just being a part of that greater conversation, of that greater consciousness um, of being a musician is a responsibility. Being a songwriter is definitely a responsibility. And performing music is not only a responsibility, but it's an opportunity to, to demonstrate in a way that a, a lot of people on this planet aren't allowed to, haven't given themselves permission to. Um, would never know where to start, are scared to, uh, feel like somebody will uh, knock them down if they do. So for me, having that and being able to do that is is such a sacred place. And yeah, I, I, that's the best way I can, I can mm. answer that. This is something that I don't think that I am just becoming aware of as like a white person. Mm. Um, about your physical body. So you're tall, you're 6'4", and yeah. you're a black man. And yeah. you've said, I think every black man and black boy gets to a point where it goes from, oh, he's so cute, to folks locking their doors and clutching their purses. When did that happen for you? How did it make you feel? How did it change the way you carry yourself? My first memory of something like that happening, I was probably... Uh, I don't know, nine years old. And my mother was in the bank in downtown Claremont in the village. And there was a candy store a few few doors down. And she told me to wait in the car and she'd be right back out. And I got out of the car and I went to the bank and uh, I snuck behind her and I reached into her purse to grab a dollar so I could go to the candy store. Um, and then she looked at me and smiled. And then before you know it, I had uh, two security guards tackling me, a nine-year-old. Um, 
And and then all I remember is my mother screaming at them, saying, this is my son. And I remember the force. Um, For one dollar. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've, I remember the force of those grown men and me thinking I'm a child. And I remember what that felt like. I remember, I remember, you know, there being imprints of, of one man's hand on my arm. Um, and, and I just remember what that felt like. And, and I remember that being a, a rude awakening to me that, okay, <laughs> my parents, you know, are loving people. They showed this resilience. They found a way out of, of the dark, going to the dark side when, when it, in the community, when these things happen, but I'm still growing into somebody that's going to have to have my own experiences and make my own choices and deal with my own emotions. Um, and my mom's not always going to be here to yell at the security guy mm. or, or security guys when things like this happen to me. Um, and so that that's my first really memory of kind of a shift in consciousness of even if you find a place to go where you can like try to educate people and of your uniqueness and your authenticity and how we're all part of this one great big family. There's still people that are going to, to see you different, differently, no matter how many songs you write or how loud you yell or how calm you are or mm-hmm. whatever. It's just walking in the skin you're walking in and can, can be enough for some people. And so I think that was, um, you know, and then, you know, at nine, 10 years old, you start growing really rapidly. And then you're dealing with a lot of um, growing into a teenager. It's not easy for anybody. And so you're dealing with a lot of emotions and and uh, trying to figure out your own body and your own way and your own uh, thought process and, and trying to identify things and people. I think that it, for me, it I always wanted to see the good in people, um, but was, I was constantly reminded that there were some people that would not let themselves see the good in me. And so that was a constant, uh, it still is, 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 a, is a, a struggle. You know, there's a line in one of the songs on the album. It's, it's uh, we see the music move you as you lay your burden down. We feel the music grip you as your soul, as your heart is soaked in sound. But when the song is over, if you decide to clap aloud, will your applause mean anything with stitches on your mouth? And I wrote that verse in particular to some of my experiences and just wanting to say to people, listen, it really doesn't matter how much this is probably going to keep happening to me uh, and to people around me uh, and to people around you. Um, and I consider myself one of the lucky ones because I get to keep going around and singing about it. But can you take, can you believe me? Can you believe these experiences? Can you not brush them aside? Can you not just see music and musicians as, as a place to escape? Can you also see music and musicians as, as a place to face some of the things that you wouldn't normally think about like bias yeah and, and can you yeah. use that as a can you use that as, as a as a reminder to to fight for those people around you uh, and that everybody has their own struggles I mean we we see what happened in Georgia recently in the Asian community it's mm-hmm. it's it just goes on and on and on and on and if you can't if if you're too far in your own bubble that you can't see that people are, are in the struggle and haven't possibly been going through these things since they were children, innocent children, and are dealing with this every day and still loving you and still working with you and still letting you, uh, you uh, overlook them and still singing for them and still working with them and still reaching out. If you can't recognize that, here's another reminder that you should. That's what that song is about. <laughs> yeah. Which song is that? That's American Silence. That's okay. the, the title title track. More questions on that later, but right now I have some questions about your autosclerosis. Is that yeah. how you say it? Yeah. Oh, uh, I usually say autosclerosis. Auto- yeah, autosclerosis. Yeah. 
It's a rare genetic hearing disorder. So you have 70% hearing in the right ear, none in the left. This developed when you were 15 and you started losing your hearing, which caused a lot of fear and concern about doing music at all. Um, When you decided to keep going, you relearned how to play. And I read a little bit about um, how it's different for for you in hearing and playing music. You say, I have kind of permanent in-ears, like in-ear monitors. I can really hear my voice and my pitch and what's going on when I'm singing. Um, what methods did you use to sort of like relearn how to play music and how did that change the way you sing? Mm. Well, yeah, when that, when that happened, it was, I was around 15, 16 years old. You know, I lost hearing in both ears. And so it was, it was devastating. It was, it was, it was, um, you know, music was the path for me. And that, that path, I felt like it was like a rug being swept from under me and, and, the, through the support of the community, my family, um, and I was able to have a surgery and regain some hearing on my right side, which is which is uh, now I have like a synthetic instead of bones in my eardrum on my right, I have like synthetic pieces, uh, I guess pro- prosthetic. Um, thankfully, when that all happened, I had a, a a vocal teacher in my community named Jennifer Madsen who I still know and I actually do some teaching with um, to this day. She helped me. Uh, everything was kind of was foreign. Not only did I lose the hearing, but then all of a sudden I had this synthetic piece. And so for me, it was like everything was static. Uh, very, it was a very static sound. Uh, there were certain things that were so loud uh, like a, a, a car driving by would be so loud that I'd feel like I needed to plug my ears or mm. a certain tones of certain instrument um, would all of a sudden be screaming loud, uh, uh, like the strumming of a guitar. Uh, I couldn't hear too well all of a sudden. Um, and so there were certain uh, like, like timbres, uh, certain parts of the spectrum of sound that started to be uh, either I couldn't hear very well or started to be so loud that it was so bothersome that I needed to figure out not only where my voice fits in live situations and recording situations and that kind of thing, but where the blend is, where everybody else is. Everything was uh, just, it was surreal. It was like learning how to hear all over again. And so things on my left, I couldn't hear hardly at all. Um, to this day, I sit in certain places on the stage with band members, depending on whether or not you want to hear them. Well, <laughs> I don't need to hear you. I'm going to sit over here. <laughs> I don't want to say that because I, I love I love the playing of everybody. But, you know, sometimes there's certain players in the group that tend to play a little louder uh, than others. And so those guys go on my left or okay. gals. Um, um, and uh, and yeah, but it, it was a it was a took a while um and i'd say it's been a journey but the first part of that journey was literally learning how to sing and communicate um and be a part of a com- of that conversation uh musical conversation and uh my teacher at the time really helped me uh embrace the uniqueness of my situation and at the same time, she was really good at not kind of not coddling me about it and not uh, being too precious about it. Mm. Um, you know, she, she was like, if you want this, this is going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life that you probably will ever do. You're going to have to fight for it. And not just now, you're going to have to fight for it as long as you want to do music. And... Uh, that was hard to hear at first, but I, I, I hear that voice in my head all over the world <laughs> when, I, when I'm playing music. It's like, Chris, you, you just, you have to, you love this. You have to fight for it. Hey, everybody, it's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. 
Very convenient. You start communicating in under 48 hours. Professional counseling done securely online. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT plus matters, grief, self-esteem. Anything that you share is confidential, and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash songwriter. Bye. You have had the opportunity to tour with and open for some amazing musicians and the two that really stood out to me in terms of mentorship are Seal and B.B. King, especially Seal. Um, many different examples of, of him being kind of a, a somebody for you to really look up to. And I really love the story of B.B. King telling you to get paid half before you play <laughs> and then half after you play. What was it like for you to not only be able to have these incredible experiences with these musicians, but to be able to learn and look up to other black men? And what do you think that experience meant to them? For me, the experience when I think of Seal and and Al Green and B.B. King, Aaron Neville, I think of we all run across in different fields uh, and music being one of them, entertainment being one of them, where you think one thing's going to be one way um, and that people with success will be a certain way. Uh, and, and I think it's something that's a, kind of a human condition that we programmed ourselves to think that, you know, successful people are usually closed off in their, you know, business all the time. And, and uh, you probably can't, can't talk to them too much or they get mad at you. And there's all these stories and things. Seal, B.B. King, Al Green... Aaron Neville and so many other examples of, of people that I've gotten to run across and tour with are completely the opposite. And that to me was the biggest lesson. I mean, these are black men that I, I look up to and looked up to, B.B. Uh, King being gone, of course, um, who not only embraced me, embraced my music, would night after night give me, show me examples of emotional emotional vulnerability night after night give me examples of uh how to be a real pro on stage and off stage how to treat everyone around you that's working on this show uh with respect and dignity Hmm. all those guys you know the seal tour was incredible i mean he there was this huge ship of people and and that were working on the show and everybody was treated so wonderfully uh, and including myself. I, I got to ride on his crew bus, whereas most opening acts would just need to find their way to the next town, wherever it is, you know, Europe or here, wherever. It's like, okay, find your way, we'll meet you there. Uh, he opened up his bus to me. I, I ate meals with them. I was treated as an equal. And I feel like the second part of your question, how did they see me? I think each one a little differently. B.B. King having this, this incredible story of literally of his, of, you know, his parents working and he, you know, memories of the cotton fields and touring through the South at times where it was not accepted, uh, fighting a different kind of fight that I'll ever have to think about fighting to go on tour. Um, and then seeing this young man come to open for him, if I had to guess, I'd guess that it made him uh, feel like looking at somebody like me, like the fight was worth it, that he paved a path, uh, that he's leaving something behind, um, and that he's proud that there's uh, a younger generation of people that are into Roots music and and uh, respect uh, where all of the kind of what people call contemporary music comes from so much so that they hold it in such high regard that they get out and do it on the road and put it on records. Uh, and uh, uh, so BB King that way, I think with Seal, I think there's something 
he probably saw in me uh, that he's that uh, that he saw in himself as well. I think that he saw that I met him at a party and I was just kind of playing acoustic for a bunch of people in the living room. And I think he he said, if I had to guess, he said to himself, you know, this is where I come from, you know, playing guitar and and trying to figure it all out and being a, a, a young black man and being a little different and being very emotional. And uh, I'm going to give this guy a shot. Um, mm. And so I think that's probably uh, what he saw as well. And, and uh, I just really looking back, I hope that they all feel like I added something to their show and, uh, you know, did a good job of warming up the crowd. Oh, man. Yeah. You're married to the actor Tara Buck. You've been mm. married since 2012. How do you influence each other creatively? And what it's like? To, what is it like to have another creative person in your house? Uh, we give each other space creatively and uh, kind of run things by each other. Like I'll write a song and I'll say, hey, uh, this isn't really done yet, but check it out. What do you think? And a lot of times, you know, she's really, you know, another artist. So she's really has strong opinions about things, which I love. And sometimes she'll say, well, I'm not really clear on the message or, or that's wonderful. Don't change a thing. Or, well, I, I just feel like, you know, the, the second verse, it kind of took me out of it. And so she's really, you know, clear with her thoughts. And I, I'm very, um, as another artist, I, it's something that I really always, I turn to her and I respect her opinion so much um and i i really want to give her that back so you know during auditions and uh when she's uh rehearsing for things i know how it is sometimes once you ask somebody a creative opinion they go on and on and on and on and you, and you think you're thinking to yourself as a creative person well i didn't ask you about right b c d e f g i right. only asked you about a <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and so I'm real careful with that as well. It's like if, if she asks me a direct question, like, what do you, do you really think that I'm conveying this character uh, in this way? Then I usually am able to uh, communicate with her my perspective and kind of maybe give her something that she wouldn't see from a musician's perspective. Uh, and with her as well as it from an acting perspective, I think she's able to hear kind of... Uh, emotionally where I'm going with songs um, and think of it from kind of like as, a, as an actor um, mm. and think, well, the main part of acting is finding yourself in the story, finding a part of yourself in the character. And then once you find yourself there, then you can really um, get the character across. And so I think she, that's the way she listens uh, when, when she, uh, when she hears my music and I do auditions with her. I'm the, I'm the reader and, uh, which is, which is a lot of fun. Uh, sometimes too fun where she tells me I need to you know, tone it, <laughs> tone it down a little bit. Uh, don't Chris, you don't need to do a Southern accent. Uh, you don't need to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but it's a lot of fun and it's really amazing to me. And it makes me so just proud to be a partner when, when she lands one of the gigs that we've worked on together. And then you can see the characters that you've read for come to life. Right, right. And I say together very, you know, it's it's really all her, but I, I just mean <laughs> me as a reader. If I were in your position, it would be fun for me to see like, oh, if Tara has the part, I'm going to see what the part that I read is going to turn out as. And then you yeah. can watch it and be like, well, that's not the way I would have done it or something <laughs> like that. That's, that yeah, would be fun. Yeah, yeah. But again, also, it's really fun to just see the layers of I mean, she's such a, an accomplished actor and just the layers. And it's 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 amazing to watch her process of her finding these different places to go and just peeling and peeling and peeling away at the at the characters and watching that process and she explains to me that it's the same kind of feeling watching me play a song for the first time versus the 20th time because you become that much closer to the song you're kind of fine-tuning and peeling things away and adding a little bit of this it's, it's kind of like cooking uh you, you don't you never want to add too much of anything 
So American Silence is your latest album. It was released on February 26th during Black History Month. What does Black History Month mean to you, and why was it important to release your record then? Um, what does Black History Month mean to me? Well, it's an opportunity for a spotlight on something that I feel like the light should be shining on year-round, something I celebrate year-round, is the achievements accomplishments, uh, inventions uh, of Black people uh, in this country. And then for me, it goes way beyond that. It's kind of where a lot of these things, like you think about things like, you know, the banjo, where a lot of these kind of influences kind of come from Africa and then are... Erased. Yeah, Thank you, Cindy. Um, and, um, and yeah, so for me, it's uh, uh, Black History Month is is a it's a good way to reach out to folks. I think that uh, don't uh, it's an opportunity for folks that don't make Black History part of their everyday or every week or every month um, focus mm. to focus. Uh, my hope is that, and I think hopefully, maybe. Part of the the reason behind it was so that would then carry on uh, to the rest of the year. Uh, so it wasn't just okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight black people and black artists and black uh, entrepreneurs and and black college students this month. Um, but that that you'd see that and be reminded of that, uh, and then that would carry on throughout the year. Now, I don't know if that's happened. Uh, I'm sure there could be a lot of arguments uh, every way in between. I would say that uh, it's it's a, always a little daunting for me, the concentration that will go on Black history during the month, the shortest month of the year. And kind of the calls that I get kind of as a musician, as an artist and that kind of thing to be a part of things that month, then there's immediately this kind of halt every year. Uh, and then it's, hey, I'm still here, you know, I, I still have songs to play. Remember that ad that you just did about black people? What? There's no ad this month. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, uh, the, the month is cool, but let it be a, a opportunity to embrace black culture year round, like you do a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, I'd say that the same thing goes for, you know, Women's History Month this month. But I'm, I'm glad at least that, uh, that there's a month I'm glad there's at least a reminder. Uh, and I just, I think there should be more concentration on women and people of color, especially in their contributions to uh, to our country. The title track, um, American Silence, we were talking about it earlier in the conversation. You said it's important to not give up on reaching out to those who have stayed silent for too long about issues that affect those all around us. Complacency is an addiction that plagues our society. And that's what hooked me into thinking a little more about wanting to know about like your thoughts on complacency. But I think the rest of what you say about this song is so important. If you smile and applaud for those different than you... Will you be willing to fight for those folks too? What are you actually doing for people who don't look like you? Mm. I mean, it's such an important song. Um, and there's so many, like we could do another hour long conversation mm. about probably just this song. Mm. So I want to know about your own struggle with complacency, your thoughts about complacency, but I also don't want to hinder you from from talking about the song and what you want to say about it yeah uh the song for me yeah it's exactly that it's it's um and it all goes back to the beginning of what we were talking about of of finding ways to to reach out even when the water's rising the pressure's building people pushing back to still to still find a way to to reach out that's part of who I am. That's part of how I was raised. And it's not a burden. It's, it's something that um, is not easy. It, it's, it's, just not, it's, not, it's not the easy road uh, of living, you know? And, and I feel like it has to be, love has to be the 
focus and the kind of what you want the end result to be. And so I feel like writing songs that stare people in the face and ask questions and challenge complacency and offer these kinds of perspectives. And even even to the point of, you know, a, a song on the record, How Can Anybody Be Okay With This, where I actually take lyrics of some of the treasured national, the national anthem and God Bless America and Star Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful. And these songs that are so revered and, and everybody sings, and but really make you think about what they really mean. And if, if there's really no progress uh, that's being made. And I feel like American Silence is what I wanted to name the album. And it's the name of the song because all of these songs are about uh, different, um, they challenge different parts of uh, American silence, not only today, but in, in our history. And for me, if I can write a love song all day that's about a personal relationship or, or love lost or that kind of thing, but to me, it's like it wasn't the time to sit down and write those kinds of songs. It's like this responsibility that we were talking about. It's deep within me. And I said, you know, Chris, at the responsibility of being an open songwriter and and showing emotional vulnerability. Now, this this is the time where it could be one album. It could be the rest of your, your music you make it. You have to make this a central part of what you're contributing to the fight for justice and equality. And so I feel like I've sprinkled songs and albums, you know, my whole career uh, that deal with some of these issues. But this seemed like a time for me where I was like, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to do an entire album. I'm going to stare people in the face and I'm going to make them deal with some things that are, uh, if, if they're listening, if they choose to listen, with some things that they might may find, find uncomfortable. And I think that's a good thing if you're uncomfortable. And I hope that makes you want to explore and converse with people uh, that may think differently than you and maybe uh, uh, be a part of a solution every day, not a Facebook post, not a, a, a tweet. Let that be part of it. <laughs> but but that's just like the appetizer of what you really should be doing and getting out there to be a part of a full course of solution mm. and change in your in your community. Um, and and if I can be any part of of incur that that encouragement to don't sit on your hands again, don't go out and march and then and then let somebody make a racist joke three months later and not say anything to them and not challenge them about it. Uh, even if it's a family member, even if it's your mother or father, you have to be a part of the solution. And we all have to be. I mean, this is like such a fragile point in our, our the human condition and our history. I, I feel like it's, it's make it or break it time. We yeah. have to be a part of it. It's, it, to me, the choice is clear. Um, and that's what this album is about. It's about, it's a clear choice. It's a, it's a, it's a clear invitation uh, to look at some of these things and to take away, hopefully, uh, that you want to be a part of, of a, a greater solution. Okay, Chris, before I let you go, will you do the lightning round? Lightning round. Oh, boy, did you tell me there was going to be a lightning round and I forgot? Oh, no. man. Oh, you didn't? Okay. All right. That, I guess that's why it's called a lightning round, right? That's right. All right, okay. here we go. Hold on, should I close my eyes and really concentrate? <laughs> All right. Just concentrate. Okay. All right. First song you learned on the guitar? I think it was one I wrote called Daydreams. Oh, very nice. Yeah. What what is your karaoke song? Uh Roni, uh Bobby Brown. Oh. What is your coffee order? Uh small black. First celebrity crush. Uh Whitney Houston. Nice one. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? B.B. King. First album you bought with your own money? Stray Cats. Wow. Um, what was your first concert? Uh, Etta James. Flying or invisibility? Uh, invisibility. Okay, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Locarno, Switzerland. Ooh. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. That's the lightning round. 
All right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really great to get to know you um, through not only our conversation, but through all the the research and stuff. You're it's just a you're you're really wonderful presence to be around and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Chris Pierce for allowing us to share that entire song. It's been burning for a while from his new album, American Silence. Check out the rest of the record. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of the episodes wherever you got this podcast or at my website, cindyhouse.net. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.